Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us today for the Smart Works panel. I'm Barbara Chai. I'm the editor of the arts and entertainment site at the Wall Street Journal called Speakeasy. So before we begin, I just wanted to introduce our esteemed guest today. Jason Momoa stars in The Red Road, and previously he was called Drogo in the HBO show Game of Thrones. He, he co-wrote, directed, and starred in the independent film Road to Paloma, and will star as Aquaman in the Warner Brothers franchise Justice League and an Aquaman, Aquaman spinoff. Please welcome Jason Momoa. Thank you. Julianne Nicholson also stars in the Sundance TV series, The Red Road, and has also starred in Showtime's Masters of Sex and HBO's Boardwalk Empire. Boom. Boom. It's the double boom. In film, she starred in August Osage County and is also here with a film premiere at Sundance, 10,000 Saints. Please welcome Julianne Nicholson. Michael McKeon is a veteran of both film and television. His credits include This Is Spinal Tap and Best in Show. And he will soon star in the AMC series and prequel to the massive hit Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. Please welcome Michael McKeon. Britt Marling is a longtime friend of Sundance. She starred in the films Another Earth, Sound of My Voice, The East, and I Origins. She is the lead in the Sundance TV series Babylon, directed by Danny Boyle, and also stars in the upcoming film The Keeping Room. Please welcome Britt Marling. Ed Carroll is the Chief Operating Officer of AMC Networks, which oversees AMC, IFC, Sundance TV, and WETV. Under his leadership, AMC has become one of the most successful networks, with shows like The Walking Dead rated number one among 18 to 49-year-olds, and Breaking Bad both a critical and commercial hit. Please welcome Ed Carroll. I was also up for the Aquaman part. <laughs> we'll have to get to that later. So I just wanted to start, all of you have careers in film and television stage. What have you observed in terms of the quality of television programming and any shifts toward smarter but equally popular entertainment? Define smart. 
Actually, at, you know, at the risk of, of sounding cynical, life has no meaning. <laughs> it's actually true, but that's not germane to what we're talking about. Um, but I, you know, I think I think TV is 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 better than it's ever been, and it's also worse than it's ever been, because no matter how good good TV gets, there will still be the Bachelor. You know, it's just. So it's like the universe, it's expanding outward and it's not all gonna be good. And uh, you know, I think, I think, I think X-Files kind of kicked something off. X-Files was the show where every week we had a really complex story, we had real sharp direction, great writing, and it looked like a damn movie every week. It was, there was no Quinn Martin production about it, it was a real movie. Uh, I think that's a positive trend, and if that's what smart means, that's good. But then again, when Monty Python first started in 1970, there were people who recognized it for the brilliance you know, that, that it, it contained, and there were other people who thought it was the dumbest thing they'd ever seen. So, you know, you gotta define your terms. Interesting, anyone else wanna speak to that? Yeah, I think as the, uh, as the network executive, I, I think there are more smart shows on the air than there have been at any time, simply because there's more outlets in the, in the space than there were. So uh, AMC was not in the drama business a few years ago. Sundance Channel was not. You have BBC America making shows, Showtime, HBO, FX, and now obviously Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, on and on and on. So if you're in our seat, actually it's a good time. I'll be interested to see if uh, the, the talented folks to my left agree. It feels like if you're in our seat, we have more pressure to act much more quickly because we're very aware of competition. And when we get a good script, um, we, we have to act or we, or we risk losing it. And we used to be able to be in the position if we liked something, we'd sit on it a month, we'd sit on it two months, you'd read it again, you know, you'd, uh, you'd really take your time because you're, it's such a big roll of the dice when you commission a television show. But we, f we intensely feel that now and so uh, you know, I think if you're, if you're here and you're a writer or you're a, a producer, uh, it's, it's a good moment for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that a lot of filmmakers who have come out of Sundance, uh, Jill Soloway, for instance, who did Afternoon Delight, which was a great indie feature, uh, went and did Transparent, which is an incredible show. And I think that as franchise filmmaking has sort of changed what films are or aren't being made in Hollywood, a lot of those a lot of the art voices have gone to television to tell long narrative you know, stories in TV because it's harder to find the financing to tell those stories in cinema anymore. And from an artistic point of view as actors, do you find that the projects in television are maybe more attractive now than film and why? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> just for an example, doing uh, Sundance or Game of Thrones, doing six episodes and coming in for two months and having a, a beautiful character that you can develop and has an amazing arc that just doesn't, isn't wrapped up in two hours. It's very exciting to do that and then be able to switch over and make your own thing or do a movie, you know, save the galaxy, you know what I mean? That kind of shit. Uh, I can save the galaxy and also be on Sundance doing a beautiful, like, you know, it's just about a, it's just a, a contemporary Native American piece for me. It's just that never happened. It, it's so beautiful that I get to do a show like this and also, you know, save the world. Julianne? Do. <laughs> do you feel the same, Julianne? I do think he can save the world, yes. <laughs> if anyone can do it. Yeah, I love being able to, I feel very proud to be here in this festival with the film and to be able to 
to be a part of Sundance Television feels very exciting to me. And to be able to do a show that, as Jason says, you, you know, you have to leave home, which is always hard, but to do it for that short of amount of time, you can bring your family with you, or um, I would go home on weekends so you can still have a life and get to do your passion. So it's, it's a great way, instead of, a, you know, 22 episodes where you're gone all the time or you're, you know, always at work, it's, it's a great way to be able to do your job and have, have a life and do other things. And Ed touched on this, but there's this sense now that audience members want as much television as they want at any time. So when you have a, a network like, or a streaming platform like Netflix, which drops an entire series at once, you could literally watch it entirely on your iPad in a weekend. So do you think that theaters may eventually become obsolete, if not films, that people want to watch whatever it is, movies or films, at any time, on the train, on their smartphone? I don't know. I think we all still love the cinematic experience. Yeah. There's something amazing about... I was talking with a friend the other day about the idea when you go see a play, if you go with your partner, your, your spouse, or your lover, you don't necessarily hold that person's hand because a play is sort of a, this auditory experience. You're very much like the cinema, you're transported. And I think that's why you hold hands at the cinema because you feel like you're going to go somewhere and you want to bring the person you love with you. <laughs> like, if he's going to save the galaxy, I want to be in that galaxy and I want to bring my boyfriend. Um, so there's something about cinema that is uniquely sort of, it's a sense of wonderment and awe, but I think it's really exciting that a lot of that is now coming to television and you're feeling these wrestling with big ideas over many hours is, is something that you can't do in the theater because you have a, two hours or an hour and a half and, and you have many hours, you know, hundreds of hours on TV potentially, so. I think it's so interesting, this thing of giving you the whole season at once. And I'm, I have, I'm guilty of watching a show in three days like Transparent, and I've done it myself, but I actually, I, I kind of love having to wait. Like, I kind of feel sad about sometimes having it all right then, because I think there's something nice about, in television, waiting for the next, next week and having that anticipation, not getting that fixed right away. So I'm, I'm curious about that, I don't know. We saw that uh, uh, intensely as Breaking Bad came to an end um, more people watched every season, more of them caught up on either their cable uh, right. VOD platform or uh, Netflix. And then they came in, and then they came into it live. What was fun about the last seven episodes, off what, what Julianne said, is this communal feeling. Uh, you know, every Monday you would come in and the internet would explode with what everyone thought about what was happening or not happening. And I think hopefully we, we will see that as Mad Men winds down. And that feeling, that is what you lose when you binge. You know, I watched Lost on a binge and I watched, you know, five seasons in four weeks and it was fun, but it's a different, uh, different experience, you know. I was working with uh, Brian Cranston in, in uh, Cambridge uh, when Breaking Bad had its final episode and it was so interesting coming to work the next day and we were up, we were up and running, we were doing the show and I walked backstage and every time I looked at Brian, there was someone else with him going, <laughs> so we were everybody it was the water cooler experience and Brian's gone hmm yeah I gotta I gotta be LBJ here you know? <laughs> but but he was very nice about it you know and uh, you know I had to I had to tell him myself I had to say look boy that's there couldn't have been a better ending to that show and and you know we knew this man could never be redeemed but he had he left this much redemption for us to to you know to make it the itch we can't quite get to it was it was perfect and Speaking of endings, though, and the cinema, I remember seeing a line around the block 
outside of the Hollywood Cemetery. And I was like, what film is screening here right now that has like thousands of people? And they were like, oh, that's the ending. It's the last episode of Breaking Bad. And I was like, wow, how amazing that this TV show has brought in this massive audience that people are coming for cinematic experience of the end of the show. That was really incredible. It's a, wow. and, a, and a first, probably, yeah. Yeah, just to be clear, I am that person who looked for the... New York City theater playing Interstellar in 35 millimeters. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jason, do you still get comments about Khal Drogo and asked to speak to Thraki? Yeah, like right now. Yeah. <laughs> You're the sun, the moon, and the stars. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, I, I get it all the time, and it's, you know, I mean, that's an honor to play such, I've never read anything quite like that, let alone see it on TV. So, um, yeah, it's, that's. It's, it's a lonely existence because there's really not a lot of people to talk to. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're not using it, you're going to lose it. So, Britt, can you talk about Babylon, which is your television series with Danny Boyle, and why you decided to shift into television on this project? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and maybe Julianne knows about this too, there aren't that many great parts written for women. And there are a lot of really wildly talented women out there who are looking for roles that are substantive and interesting, where the woman has a lot of agency, where she's not just reacting to things or serving up the monologue for the male protagonist. And so it's rare that you read really good stuff. And when I read the pilot for Babylon, Danny called me and he was like, look, this is a really challenging role. It's really complicated. We want to tackle complicated ideas about the police force and institutionalized racism and how is technology and ideas of transparency and the end of privacy maybe going to change these institutions and sort of force them to evolve. And, and I was like, wow, that sounds really exciting. I read the script and it was a provocative character. I'd never seen anyone like her. She was powerful and interesting, but also vulnerable and complicated and broken in some ways, but had a lot of great ideas. And um, we had a tremendous time making it. It was really, like you were saying, when you play something long form, you know, you get six hours to develop a character. And that's, I mean, for an actor, that's, that's a, an incredible joy because usually you're trying to condense sort of um, part for whole. You know, you're taking pieces and scenes and trying to tell a story of an entire person, you know, a person's whole character. And now you have a lot more time to do that. And this was a great challenge. I really enjoyed it. When we bring up Danny, it's so fascinating to watch directors also gravitating toward television. I mean, Scorsese was involved much longer, but we have Ang Lee, Jane Campion. So it's just, it's kind of an interesting shift. And Ed, do you see that? At AMC, a number of film directors coming to you with story specs and ideas for shows. Everyone has a story. A yeah. TV show now. Uh, it used to be uh, um, uh, five or six years ago, when reality was hot, everyone had an idea for a reality show. You couldn't go to a wedding. Uh, and someone wouldn't say, I have an idea for a reality show. But we take two people, and we put them on an island. Uh, so, so now what we're, we're finding from directors, producers, uh, they have stories that they're really passionate about telling, and the economics of, of uh, cinema, for, for whatever reason, uh, have not worked to tell that story, and or it's just a longer canvas they want to paint for the characters. And the thing about format, uh, TV is cyclical, obviously, um, and when I came up, everyone was shouting about Dick Wolf, Law and Order, CSI. That was the gold mine. Those shows would run forever in syndication, and they were closed-ended, and you didn't know when those detectives went home at the end of the day what their family was like, what their situation was like. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, now look who I'm talking to. That's exactly it. So those were great <laughs> stories, and they play forever, and you can come in and go out. And, and everyone said, you make a billion dollars in syndication if you do those kind of stories. 
it changed, and I think because of, of VOD and catch-up, so we don't worry about it. When you're making, uh, you know, when, when you're looking at the plot points for, for the Red Road or, or for Babylon or for The Walking Dead, you're not thinking, right, but if we go down there, people will forget what happened there and it's too complicated and how are they going to follow the story and no one will be able to come in on season three. They'll just throw up their hands because they won't know who's doing what to whom or what the backstory is. But because you know now that people can catch up on their own, that gives writers, directors uh, freedom to... To, to tell these serialized stories. And it's really changed uh, the way we uh, consume television and what's on it. Michael, for the legions of Breaking Bad fans, mm -hmm. can you just give us a hint of your character? No. <laughs> I play, you better uh, call Saul. I play Chuck McGill, who is uh, the older brother, the much older brother, of, uh, of Jimmy McGill, who eventually will become uh, Saul. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, obviously. And uh, I'm the good brother. I'm the guy who, who you know, graduated from uh, law school at 21 and uh, went right into practice and became the ultimate white shoe guy. And, uh, but now things are a little changed. And I was, my, my life was also about bailing Jimmy out of jail or getting him out of trouble or getting him on the straight and narrow. If you've ever been the good brother or the good sister and had your parents call, Listen, could you talk to no? That's that was that was Chuck's life, um, and now things are changed a little bit, and there's been a shift, and Jimmy has become kind of a care carekeeper, care caretaker, taker, I guess. And um, I can't really tell you too much more about it because the fun is in finding out what the hell's going on, which is one reason I watch TV shows to find out what the hell's going on. So this is probably for both of you, but I want to talk about The Red Road, and Jason mentioned it is a rare story, um, very successful so far. Could, and Julianne, I'm also interested to hear about your film, 10,000 Saints, which is, I saw it the other night, it's a beautiful film that reimagines family, very different family from August Osage County. If you could talk about the two projects and um, representing both here. Sure. Uh, well, uh, something else I was going to say about doing a series and having that long format, it's, it's also... Extra, it's very exciting to have a, a second season to come back again because you've, you've had that time the first season and then you go away and it sort of sinks a little bit deeper and then when you come back together you already have those relationships and, you, and trust and familiarity and you could, the, the starting off point comes from a deeper place. That was my experience on this show and that made it that much more fun and exciting and, and, and challenging too at times. Um, so I love that part of it. And then um, 10,000 Saints, was a, it's a, based on a book. And it takes place in New York City. It's a coming of age story. And this um, Asa Butterfield plays a young man who lives in Vermont. And he goes to live in Manhattan with his dad, Ethan Hawke, like 88, 89, right around the Tompkins Square Park riots. And I, I loved being a part of that because I moved. I started going to New York when I was 17, in 1989. And so, discovering Alphabet City and those people and was a huge thrill to me and I have such a fondness for that time in my heart so to be able to help recreate that was very exciting even though my character's blowing glass in Vermont but it, at least it was like it was nice to, to see and Jason so you just signed on for this huge I mean pretty much as big as you get in terms of blockbuster film as Aquaman Yep. So, so badass. We're so proud I of know, Jason. So what can fans of the comic book expect? Uh, well, 
things are going to be a little different. Um, you know, I was when I when I first went in, I met with uh, Zach. His idea is pretty amazing. So I'm just the biggest thing is I'm excited for everyone to. Um, Zach Penn. Zach Snyder. Sorry. Oh, okay. um, when I went in, he told me my jaw kind of drops. My jaw doesn't normally drop. We I've, wouldn't I've, notice I've, it anyway because of the beard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was, um, you know, the, what he has planned for the DC world and for um, definitely for Aquaman is something that, you know, I think I was brought on for um, for a certain reason, and uh, they got some they got some really cool plans for him, and I'm excited for everyone to see it. But I really can't. I mean, it's pretty like last year when I was on this panel. I was like eating chicken breasts and like in training and I wasn't supposed to talk about anything for until I wasn't supposed to say anything until 2016. So I told a bunch of people they could punch me in the face if I was on it. So I'm going to get hit a couple times, you know what I mean? So, but they they finally released it, but you know, I was supposed to hold my keep a secret for three years. Yeah. And Michael Shannon has been here at the festival wearing a t Michael Shannon stars as General Zod, as we know, and he's been wearing an Aquaman t-shirt around really? town. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> What's your relationship there? I mean, the other thing that is really exciting that Zach thought up, I mean, you know, there's not, not to get in a whole, it's kind of like with Red Road, the Native American, like, you know, the contemporary Native American story. There's not a lot of brown superheroes. And, you know, the, you know I'm Polynesian, I'm half Polynesian, and what that's going to represent to all, to every islander, to every brown kid that's out there is going to be like, it's, it's really cool what they're doing with that, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, um, that's an honor to represent that. So I think we're going to turn it over now to some audience questions. There are a couple people walking around with mics. If you just want to raise your hand and please speak loudly, and then I'll repeat the question. The hands always go up in the back. Have you noticed? Yes, this man with the hat. Oh, there's two right there. So the, the, yeah. Sorry, I just want to repeat. The question is uh, being more open and creative now in television than 20 years ago. I mean, I, I just think the bar has been raised in everything. From technology to the art forms, I mean, like to sports. And I think people are smarter and they, they once you, you see certain levels, like you were talking about X-Files, you want that. Otherwise, yeah. it's like shit. You know what I mean? I think really movies... Well said. Yeah. <laughs> Movies have like really set a tone, and they've changed like movies that have come along, and they've set a tone for TV shows, and that has like you know through that has changed a lot of things too. That I'm, I don't know. The bar has been raised. <laughs> That's true, but you know, the, it it really, you can't just take a pattern from another movie. I, I happened to see a little bit of Ender's Game last night, and I thought, well, what's why isn't this working for me? I like all these actors, and I. I like the general story. I didn't never read the books, but I like the, I like the story, and and it's because it was kind of put into a pattern of another movie. It all seemed like well, we'll take this from this and this from this and this, you know. Whereas something like Breaking Bad or Walking Dead really kind of it starts with the germ of an idea, and then it's filled out with all the technique that we've that we've uh, all the technology that we've developed, and it 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 makes sense on its own rather than oh this is as good as that last movie we saw, you know. It it, it you really need that. It's got to be original. I don't think there's been an, a more original show than Breaking Bad. I think it's like, just from the first episode, it's, you know, if you're not hooked, you're not going to watch. But that first episode, it's, well, there's never been a TV show anything like this. So then we should talk about, to your question, the way we keep score has changed. 
I, I'm not, I don't believe television executives have gotten any smarter. And through the decades, there have been great television shows that we can all point to. But the way we keep score has changed. So to Michael's point, Breaking Bad would have gone off the air. Because the, a few, million, uh, few million viewers in the old broadcast model where you had three or four channels, it just wasn't enough. But now uh, you can claim success with those kind of numbers. And so you can give time for the audience to build, 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 and come find it, find it, find it. That just wasn't technologically the case years ago. There was a sitcom many years ago, 25 years ago uh, at least, called Buffalo Bill, starring Dabney Coleman. And it was on for maybe not even a whole season. And it was so brilliant and so cynical and so nasty. And, and the, the lead character was a guy you just wanted to kill. And I was heartbroken when it went off the air because there was nothing else like it on the air. And it was Dabney Coleman every week. I mean, it was like, you know, it's win-win. So, uh, yeah, times are different now. Another question down here in the front. Is Aquaman going to have a beard and mustache? Well, I mean, just going off what you've seen so far, ma'am, I don't think he's going to be blonde or white. I mean, so I really can't tell you because I haven't shot it yet. I hate to disappoint, but, um, you know, I'm a little different than what those others. I hope you watch it with an open heart. And uh, I went to school for marine biology. I'm my, my, you know, it's a really honor to play this. And like I said, being Hawaiian, Kanaka Maoli, it's like, you know, Kanaloa and Maui are the greatest, those are our superheroes, they're our gods. So I mean, aside from the superhero thing, it's an honor just to be representing, those are our gods. Well, you mentioned the word honor, and I'm going to say, at 74 years of age, I cannot wait to swim in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, I'm sweating, I'm a... What's your name again? I'm just like, I hope you like it. <laughs> We're recording this. We got to show Warner Brothers. <laughs> Go ahead, and stand up and look at her. No. I want to see you after. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. New to you. Another question. This woman here. I'm just, I'm just curious in in terms of you know going from the cinema and then acting on television. How do you, as actors, prepare your craft? Do you feel pressured to get it right immediately? You, you know, you just don't have that luxury maybe when you're doing a movie versus doing TV. So how do you develop your character and get into that role pretty quick and, and make, it, make the magic happen? I bet everyone's got an entirely different answer to that. Mine is, what, 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 what's, what's the story again? <laughs> No, in, in my experience with uh, the, the, the Gilligan uh, regime, uh, they told me very little. And I accepted the role because I'd worked with Gilligan before and I loved Breaking Bad and everything. But I didn't see a, a punctuation mark of the script before I said, yeah. So then once I get, they just kind of like, they kind of fed me little by little of what the story was. And while we were shooting, they would call me and say, now the next episode, this happens and I hope you're okay with that. So uh, it, it really, it goes week to week. But to have someone, a creative head like, like uh, Vince and Peter, uh, Peter Gould, it, um, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, fall backwards into the arms of trust here, you know. 
and this, the character made sense, you know, as, as bizarre as the character is at times, it, it, it makes sense to me. So I just kind of just tried, like I always do, figure out what the hell the character wants and then go after it. So. Yeah, I think to add to that, it was interesting on Babylon, which is a contained, it's a seven-hour miniseries, but it hadn't all been written. So all the actors were signing on based on the first two hours and an idea of where it might go. And so it is a huge leap of faith, but it's amazing because the writers, Sam, uh, Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong and also Danny Boyle who directed, everybody was in the room together when we were doing those first table readings and the rehearsals. And so the writers are, and the directors are watching the actors and like where's the chemistry and who has a natural rapport and what, what aspects of the character really land and what isn't working. And then they tailor the scripts to what, you know, the, the clay that they're working with. And I found that to be a really exhilarating process because everyone was really open to what the actors had to offer in terms of the depth of the character homework they can do. You know, I spend all day thinking about Liz Garvey and her perspective and where she comes from. And the writers have to think about everybody. So when you're coming to rehearsal and you're bringing this sort of depth, you know, of experience, you can be like, well, I think this and this and this about Liz's background or how she relates to Finn. And then all that ends up woven into the story, so it's a really rewarding experience as an actor, I think, yeah. Another question in the back with the mic. Uh, yeah, hi, this, I have a question about sort of uh, risk-taking. Given the volume of material that's out there, I guess this one is a two-parter, one for Ed and then one for the actors. On the network side, um, lots of projects out there. Um, is, there is, is there more of a... Um, a conscious decision to take greater risks in the choices of the programs you're looking for. And then I turn that over to the actors as well. Given the number of shows on the air, um, are you thinking about when you're making choices within that performance of pushing it, doing things you might not otherwise have done given everything that's going on out there? I don't, I don't know if anybody has a thought on that. I don't think risk, I don't think you think about taking a risk. I think you think about uh, programming an interesting story that hasn't been shown before or told before in, in a certain way. Um, and that's what you think about. And then, frankly, you're thinking about... Um, it's, it's just true that a person comes in with a pilot script and they may have spent uh, five years crafting that script. But, you, but if you say go, they're going to need to write nine more or five more in a few months. And do they have a clear, can they, can they sort of handle that, you know? And Vince Gilligan came in and he said, Walter Mitty becomes Michael Corleone. He knew, he didn't know how many years, how many episodes, what, but he had a very clear idea of where he was going. So those are the things you look for, something fresh and new, and someone who you think uh, can get you there. As an actor, it's very exciting to do something different. And the more, the more you do, people can start to know you as a certain thing, and then you get those offers, and I think you, I speak for myself, try to take care about that and do, and I get excited by when I see things that are happening with the character that I've not done before, to challenge myself and to learn more about what I do and to try to get better and, and ex like walk in other shoes. That's definitely something I keep in mind when I'm reading a script. Yeah, I'm definitely on the same page. I just, uh, I get high and excited off of the, the, the areas where I'm unsure, and I've, I've went to those places where, and pushed my character, like in Game of Thrones, there's some things that weren't originally in there, and I don't think a lot of people, well, they didn't plan on being maybe as Drogo being as big as he it came out to be, and uh, every day, I mean, I'd come in and 
it's their job to pull me back. Yeah. I mean, you're hired to, that's what directors and producers, their, my job is to come in and here's my ideas and this is what I studied for and these are the things that I brought to it. And, uh, you know, and then they, that's, you, it's a collaborative. You come in and they're like, fuck, they rewrote some stuff and we changed some stuff on the book. And, you know, George, you know, you, you know, I'm not doing that on purpose to do that. But like, if it's not in the book, I would just wanted to see Drogo hurt someone. <laughs> like, I just got done doing Conan cutting 16 heads off in a scene. I'm like, I think we should probably get this great idea. We should just like, rip this. someone yells at my wife, I'm gonna rip his throat out. I mean, <laughs> and I don't even need any weapons. Let's just do it with no fighting. Cause was, was there ever any comment because you became so popular, your character? Any conversation about not killing you? That's what happened with Aaron Paul. He was supposed to. He was not supposed to make it out of season one. And then uh, it wasn't really his popularity. It was the character was clicking so well with Walt White. It just didn't make sense. He was doing a lot for the plot that needed. So they rethought it. Did they ever talk about that with you? You know, I mean, obviously, the, the flashbacks and stuff, they, they rewrote for that because um, a lot of people love Drogo. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, he has to die. He, he absolutely has to die. And I think that's a, it's, George is a genius for killing him because he... You hate him in the beginning. You absolutely fall madly in love with him because he's falling in love, and he and you just see that he's gonna do anything for her, and then he dies of a goddamn scratch. <laughs> well, he actually dies from a fucking pillow, to tell you the truth. <laughs> it's genius. You know what I mean? It's absolutely genius. It's like how Attila was taken out. I mean, like that's the stuff that's uh, he has to die, and I would wish I could have done some more because it would be amazing to do to you know let's just maybe kill him in t season two. <laughs> Let's kill some more things. Let's fall in love a little more. And uh, but you know it, it's it's great because she has to take she transforms into him. And she takes that and she has to go on her own path. So I mean that's really what I mean, he had to die. This woman right here. I think more women writing, you know, and I think that's why it's, we're in such an exciting time right now because you're seeing a lot more women write and produce and direct. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's not an accident that, that I think it's something like less than 10% of directors and screenwriters are women, which is sort of a shocking figure to think about it still being that way. And so, of course, of, of course, then cinema and TV is largely from the male perspective because... You know, I'm a girl, I tend to write from about girls. And if you're a guy, of course, you tend to see the world through the male point of view. So I think the more women that go into, into writing and directing, we're going to see a lot more. And, and of course, you know, Babylon was a show that was created by two male writers and, um, and Danny Boyle directed. And so it still happens all the time that great, great women are created by men. But I think, I think that's the beginning of the shift, you know, watching Kristen Wiig and Lena Dunham and a lot of women sort of take the reins and be like, I'm not finding the characters that I need. I'm going to just sit down and write them. On the other hand, all men are created by women. True that. <laughs> that is so, that is too true. <laughs> and we have time for one more question. This one right here. With the, yeah. I um, have a question just for the actors. I'm curious if you've ever received one crazy piece of advice that's had a surprising impact or effect on your piece career. Piece of ice? Piece of advice. Oh, advice. <laughs> so I fell on a piece of ice just the other night. It was not a good experience. Very impacting piece of ice. Wow. I, uh, uh, I, I had an, I, my first college I went to, I was way not ready for college. But I had a really good acting teacher uh, named uh, John Ulmer, and he his his watch cry 
was so simple and so direct, and it was what you do, you really do. Not a thing can be faked. And that's on the stage. On the stage, you got to jack it up a little bit, you know, because, because the, the guy's in the, the back row. But on film, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a different kind of canvas. But if it ain't real, no one's going to care. And I think that's probably the best advice I ever got. And the other one was for Olympia Dukakis, who was my teacher at NYU. She said that having a great moment is like having a great bowel movement. <laughs> There's a feeling of success, but you still got to get on with the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs> Any other pieces of advice? <laughs> you know, that's the only thing people are going to remember from this panel. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> no. That's it. Oh, another good one I got, though, I think that one might now have taken, taken place. It would look um, nice on a pillow, too, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> Respect your ball movement. I mean. that's yes. um, yeah, uh, I, uh, someone told me once that you have got really to be willing to fail that you've got to have a lot of mistakes that you've made and a lot of times that it didn't work. And if, if you're not doing that, if you don't have a bunch of things that crashed and burned behind you, you're probably not pushing yourself as an artist. And I think certainly true now that some, everything is so documented and so discussed online that you sort of get afraid. Some people, I think, get afraid and you get boxed in and you think, like, oh, I can't take a risk. And um, I think in this art, from all sides, you know, writing, acting, directing, producing, making TV shows, it's important to take big risks and, and be okay with the failures. Yeah. When, when I was starting out, my manager encouraged me to say no. Like, if, if I didn't like what I was reading, because I was waitressing and I was tired of waitressing, and sometimes you might get a part that you want to do just because you want to make some money and you really want to be acting, and, and she really encouraged me to say no. And, I mean, I had an agent who I used to say no to things all the time, so, she didn't want me to prestige myself out of the business. I was like, that's nice. I'm just trying to do things I'm proud of, actually. And I think if you do that sort of early on, then it's sort of, it's, it's really helped me to be able, I mean, some, I have done jobs that have not been my dream <laughs> to like pay for my food. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that's an important thing to be able to say no. You don't have to say yes to everything. And you actually, there's, there's power in no especially as a woman and some of the roles that you're offered, do you feel like that's not the message I want to be putting out there? Now you tell me. <laughs> uh, I had great advice. They said, learn your lines, be on time, and treat others like you want to be treated. That's pretty much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Let's give another big round of applause. For Thank you.